Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, January 19th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. So we have a great show for you today. Make sure you pour yourself an extra cup of coffee, call your family members, call your friends, and tell them to tune in. A uh, quick recap. In October of 2001, only a few weeks after the events of 9-11, U.S. forces began operations in Afghanistan to capture or kill members of the designated terrorist group Al-Qaeda and to dislodge the reigning government at the time, the Taliban. With a relatively small footprint on the ground and with close air support, the U.S. military routed the Taliban and forced them and al-Qaeda to flee into the mountains or across Afghanistan's borders. For 20 years, the United States and our NATO allies supported the Afghan government, the Afghan military, and the people as they struggled to create a new nation. Sadly, it wasn't enough to erase the scourge of the Taliban, al-Qaeda, or even the Islamic State in the nation of Afghanistan. And all of us remember the events of August of 2021 and the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. We're always quick to place blame here in America, and I would submit to you that what we should always do first is to assess what went wrong, ensure we don't forget those important lessons, and then move forward, especially when it comes to American national security interests. Today, we have a very special guest on our show, someone who can tell us what was really happening in Afghanistan and leading up to the collapse of the Afghan government and military. He can help us to learn lessons from that conflict before we're drawn into a new, probably more deadly encounter elsewhere in the world. Our guest today is Ambassador Ross Wilson, who arrived in Kabul on January 18th of 2020 as the U.S. Charge d'Affaires to the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Over the course of four decades as a U.S. diplomat, Ambassador Wilson served as U.S. Ambassador to Azerbaijan from 2000 to 2003 and to Turkey from 2005 to 2008. And he held later assignments as Charge d'Affaires in Turkey in 2014 and the Republic of Georgia from 2018 to 2019. Elsewhere overseas, Ambassador Wilson served at U.S. embassies in Moscow and Prague and was Consul General in Melbourne, Australia. He was Principal Deputy to the Ambassador-at-Large and Special Advisor to the U.S. Secretary of State for the new independent states of the former Soviet Union from 1997 to 2000. He also served as Deputy Executive Secretary of the U.S. State Department for Secretaries Jim Baker, Lawrence Eagleburger, and Warren Christopher, and as Chief of Staff to Deputy Secretary of State Robert Zellick, who was the Chief U.S. Negotiator for the Free Trade Area of the Americas. He also worked in the State Department offices dealing with the USSR and Egypt. From 2010 to 2014, Ambassador Wilson was Director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, where he led Atlantic Council work on Turkey, the former Soviet states, and regional energy, economic, and political issues and integration, and organized its annual Energy and Economic Summits in Istanbul. In addition, has been a visiting lecturer in international affairs at the Georgia Washington University in Washington, D.C., and served on the boards of Global Minnesota and the Institute of Turkish Studies, and on advisory councils of other nonprofit organizations active in international affairs. 
Ambassador Wilson received a bachelor's degree from the University of Minnesota and a master's degree from both Columbia University and the U.S. National War College. He's a recipient of the U.S. President's Meritorious Service Award, as well as numerous U.S. Department of State awards and honors. He holds memberships in the America Academy of American Diplomacy, the American Foreign Service Association, Diplomatic and Consular Officers Retired, the Washington Institute of Foreign Affairs, and the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Uh, Ambassador Wilson is married to Margot Squire, also a veteran of the U.S. Foreign Service, and they make their home in the Twin Cities. Ambassador Ross Wilson, thank you for joining us today. Welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. <clears throat> so, Ambassador, I often uh, start the show by having a little discussion with my guests to learn a little more about their professional career background. You completed your undergraduate degree at the University of Minnesota. What, what was your major, uh, and then what was your career path uh, to join uh, the Department of State? Uh, thanks, uh, John, for the question. While I was at the U, I became uh, very interested in history, uh, political matters, uh, took a couple of courses in diplomatic history, uh, got interested in, in, uh, in international relations, and especially the how international relations gets done. Uh, the, the, the place in, uh, in the world or in life where an American can do international relations as opposed to write about it or talk about uh, or observe it is, is, in the, is in the U.S. Foreign Service. Uh, I pursued, uh, pursued uh, that uh, career track, uh, went to Columbia to kind of hone my, uh, hone my skills, so to speak. Uh, while I was there, I did an internship uh, at the State Department, uh, successfully passed the Foreign Service entrance exam is the Foreign Service uh, still uses a competitive exam to, uh, to take in people and was fortunate enough to be brought on board in the summer of 1979. So your, your bio tells us uh, that you had a very, very successful career at the Department of State uh, as a diplomat. Uh, if you were going to give advice today to high school students or college students about, uh, who are interested in a career in diplomacy, what would that advice be? Well, as I suggested in what in my first uh, comments back to you, John, uh, if for those who are interested in in being in the, you know, in the game, in the mosh pit, in the doing of international affairs and the conduct of America's foreign relations uh, with other countries, uh, a, a career in public service and in particular a career in the U.S. Foreign Service is, uh, is the way to do that. Public service is a is a wonderful and tremendously rewarding thing. It's a way to make a difference in the world. Um, a, a, a academic or other background in international affairs is not really essential. Uh, I know many foreign service officers who were uh, English majors, uh, physics majors, um, we had degrees, uh, law degrees, or other uh, other graduate degrees. Clearly, you have to have an interest in the world, uh, in international issues, uh, uh, languages, foreign languages, some experience abroad is very helpful. The entering age is not uh, right out of college. Uh, the average average entering age usually is in the late 20s, early 30s. Uh, there were people in my foreign service class in their mid 40s. Uh, and that's, uh, that's not particularly uncommon. I encourage those who are interested in, in being out in the world uh, and representing the United States of America uh, abroad uh, to consider a career in the Foreign Service. So language skills going in aren't necessarily required, but they are very helpful? Uh, language isn't required, but in the evaluation of candidates, 
uh, and there are usually uh, tens of thousands of candidates who are <laughs> applying, an evaluation of candidates' uh, language skills um, and aptitude in foreign languages is, uh, adds to the points you get, so to speak, and, and increases uh, your odds to get in. That said, for, uh, for most of our posts overseas, uh, the, the, the State Department uh, wants its officers abroad to have, have the local language. Uh, and so the Foreign Service Institute uh, at, uh, at the State Department uh, will train people in whatever language is required uh, for the country where they're serving. It might be Dari in the case of Afghanistan uh, or, uh, or Thai in the case of Thailand or uh, Spanish, French, German when, when, that's, when that's relevant. Obviously, the more exotic languages, there will be fewer people that come in uh, having that aptitude. Sure. Uh, why don't we go ahead and start moving forward on our topic today of, uh, of your time in Afghanistan. Uh, I'll ask this first. Uh, your, your background indicates you had extensive experience in places like Turkey, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, among other, other nations. And you were actually called out of retirement and asked to take that leader, leadership position in, in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, how do you decide whether or not to take that post, and, and what guidance did you receive before you went out to Kabul? And, and maybe briefly, you could talk about the difference between being a U.S. ambassador and being a charge, <laughs> just so our audience understands the difference. Sure. Um, so in October of 2019, I got a call from a senior official uh, at the State Department asking me if I would be willing to go out to, uh, to Kabul uh, to serve as chief of mission as charge d'affaires, uh, uh, of our embassy there. Um, the incumbent ambassador uh, uh, w was going to be leaving uh, uh, very shortly after the first of the year. Uh, the Trump administration um, was still deliberating on who, uh, who to nominate as a permanent successor. And there's also, of course, the problem of getting people confirmed or the time that it takes to get incoming people to confirmed. Uh, the, uh, the leadership wanted I, uh, what I was told. They wanted somebody that that had an ambassadorial title uh, from a previous posting, um, both uh, to give greater stature to our dealings with the uh, with the Afghan government, uh, helpful in our dealings in the embassy's dealings with the U.S. military, and the experience uh, that that an ambassador has running a large, complex mission. Uh, obviously very applicable in the largest and most complex mission that the United States uh, had at that time. I agonized over this for, uh, for my wife and I agonized over this for some time. It meant being separated. And that, that wasn't very interesting. Uh, I had never served in Afghanistan. There were lots of senior foreign service officers, including, uh, including people with ambassadorial titles who, uh, who had served there and struck me as better candidates. Um, uh, uh, I went out to Washington, met with Secretary Pompeo, with Ambassador Halilzad, with others to kind of talk through before, you know, talk through the issues and, and the approach to those issues before, uh, uh, before saying yes. Ultimately, I concluded it was my duty. I had signed up uh, to the Foreign Service because in order to serve our country, I was being asked to do so, and, and, I, and I felt I had to do it. Um, in the in the uh, meetings that I had with uh, with Secretary Pompeo with others, uh, the guidance I think I had essentially was to uh, make to to, uh, the, uh, to to help make the U.S. Taliban agreement if it came to uh, fruition. This was 
This was in the fall of 2019 mm -hmm. to make, but but if that agreement could be con successfully concluded to make it work uh, and, and to ensure that it was well implemented um, to um, and, and, uh, and specifically to support efforts to use uh, the leverage that America's commitment that would be embodied in that agreement to withdraw, to use that leverage uh, in order to secure a political settlement uh, that uh, that preserved uh, gains of the 20 years uh, of our of the prior 20 years of our involvement in that country and and preserve our ability to advance American interests there. Um, I was also asked to kind of look ahead to a post-settlement um, role for the United States, uh, a post-settlement um, uh, look of the American embassy, which was very large, extremely expensive, uh, and 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 sort of start to plan out that transition. Uh, initially, uh, my term in Cabo was was uh, to be four to six months. Uh, that got extended to the end of the year, and then and then extended uh, to March, and then extended to the summer, uh, and uh, and and ultimately, of course, in the fall. Uh, when uh, when when I left the country at the at the end of August. Yeah, and and, and we'll get to that. Well, it sounds to me uh, that you, you received pretty clear guidance from uh, Secretary Pompeo and the Trump administration about what was you were being asked to do, uh, and we'll continue on with that discussion in a minute. For our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Ambassador Ross Wilson, who served as U.S. Charge d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, so, Ambassador, you arrive in Kabul on January 18th of 2020. What was the situation in Afghanistan at that time? Um, uh, I, on, on the big uh, on, on a high plane, the country was relatively peaceful and stable uh, and had been for, um, for the preceding several months uh, as, the United, as the U.S. Taliban agreement started to take shape in the summer and was almost uh, signed and concluded in September. That had led to a um, or, or had, had produced a tremendous diminution in the level of attacks against uh, U.S. and coalition forces uh, in the country and against diplomatic establishments such as ours and 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 the other uh, allied partner countries uh, in Kabul. It wasn't peaceful, mm -hmm. uh, but it was it was uh, it was much uh, it was a much lower tempo of violence, especially in Kabul and other big cities, than had been the case um, uh, than had been the case, say six months or twelve months uh, earlier. Um, I was struck on arrival by the the size uh, of our mission and the seriousness uh, with which everybody took security. I, I anticipated that, but it was still made a big impression. Uh, when I got off my airplane, I I, uh, I was asked to put on a flak jacket and a helmet, uh, taken to an embassy facility at the airport, flown uh, in a, in a uh, yeah, helic by helicopter to the uh, to the to our uh, to our diplomatic compound. Uh, people took that stuff very, very seriously, and I think, uh, especially so in the in the immediate wake. This was this was two weeks after uh, after uh, Soleimani was mm -hmm. taken out uh, in Iran. Uh, there were a lot of fears of uh, of Iranian retaliation and Afghanistan uh, bordering on Iran. 
uh, had been seen at the time as a, as a potential target. So we, everybody took that very, took security very, very seriously. Uh, and, uh, and that made a big impression on me. Kabul is, was, was one of the largest, probably the largest mission, uh, U.S. mission in the world uh, with a gigantic military overlay. I think 12,000, 12, 13,000 U.S. forces led by a four-star, four-star general. Uh, the embassy itself uh, packed with a, with a wide variety of, of U.S. government agencies, particularly the security agencies, but also AID, uh, the FBI, Treasury, uh, others. And uh, with lots and lots of senior senior level attention in Washington, uh, intense uh, public interest in what was going on, uh, the the fact of my predecessor's departure, uh, front page news in the New York Times, uh, that that obviously made made an impression uh, an impression on me. I there was clearly a a uh, a yearning for peace. Uh, one could see that in the discussion. I saw that in the discussions that I had, uh, initial discussions I had with Afghan leaders, uh, Afghan civil society figures, uh, uh, political actors and others, how that was going to happen. You know, there were a lot of uh, uncertainty about that, a lot of fear about how that would about how that would work out, a lot of looking for reassurance as to what, what America's purposes were uh, and how things would go forward. Yeah. Uh, so you, you painted a great picture for us of sort of the interagency, the U.S. interagency uh, coordination that was going on there uh, in Afghanistan. Can you tell us a little bit about the daily coordination you did with, say, the Afghan government, the NATO leaders, uh, ISAF as a whole, you know, that kind of thing? On, I mean, what were you working on on a daily basis uh, during that time frame up until the election and the transition from the Trump to Biden administration? Well, as uh, as you suggested, John, you know, we, uh, we had a large military, we had a large counterterrorism operation, we had many agencies, we had lots of money, lots and lots of people. I think the embassy was around 4,000 staff when I arrived, plus the 12,000 plus uh, U.S. soldiers, plus another uh, other baskets of people. Um, each one of the seniors in these in these constellations met with uh, met with President Ghani, met with um, other senior political leaders and government uh, senior ministers. Uh, it, no one in Washington really saw sees across the spectrum of 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 U.S. relations with any country, um, other than uh, the ambassador and and the senior most people at post. That's typical of any uh, of all of the missions in which I have served. Uh, and uh, and 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 that's part of the ambassador's job is to is to see across everything and and to try to make sure that 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 the the various arms of the U.S. government uh, that are involved are coordinated and and reasonably in sync. That was really 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 big business uh, in uh, in Afghanistan. I met with the president roughly once a week yeah. for the 20 months that I was there. Some weeks it was more frequent. There were there were some breaks, especially face to face uh, breaks during uh, during COVID when when we had to do it virtually via Zoom or or some other or by phone or by some other uh, some other platform. Uh, I tried to uh, meet or talk with uh, with uh, General Miller, the commander of Resolute. Uh, resolute uh, support, the resolute support mission, the NATO mission, uh, and also the commander of U.S. forces there, uh, with uh, and with 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 the other senior people to talk through 
what what we were hearing from Afghan leader from Afghan leaders and what we were saying to Afghan leaders in, in part to ensure that we were saying uh, if not exactly the same thing at least complementary things and that and that uh, and that there was never any suggestion uh, that the Afghans could could uh, could uh, you know play us off one another or make use of different things that they were that they were that they were uh, they were hearing uh, hearing from us. Um, our role on the peace process was uh, was somewhat limited. Um, we uh, we had I had absolutely no dealings with the Taliban. That was Ambassador Khalilzad's uh, role. Our job was to support him uh, and, and to support what he was doing. Uh, with the Talibs and to support his discussions with the Afghan uh, Afghan government, in which, of course, I was uh, uh, I was uh, I was I was very involved. But this was a, you know, it was a, uh, you know, it was a big and complex set of set of things going on, and um, uh, and then of course it also involved thousands of people working for me, uh, the challenges of COVID, the challenges of morale. Uh, at a uh, uh, at a uh, this diplomatic uh, outpost, very very isolated from Afghan society, uh, and that that kind of the challenges that that represents that also was a big part of uh, a big part of 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 what what I and others in the leadership team had to deal with. Okay, so a year roughly after you arrived, the U.S. has a transition of government between uh, President Trump and, and President Biden. Uh, and normally, I know that U.S. ambassadors tender their resignations uh, when the new uh, administration comes in. But you were asked to remain in Kabul. Uh, what was the specific ask from the Biden administration? And what new guidance did you receive from the incoming Biden team about your duties and their plans for Afghanistan? So, uh, as you noted, uh, ambassadors usually are asked to submit their resignations. I wasn't a presidentially appointed Senate confirmed ambassador, so no such request came to me, uh, in, in, and in fact, in the in the discussions that I had with the transition team, uh, and then obviously, especially and officially after after people came into office uh, on January 21st, I was asked uh, would I be willing to stay uh, until they could kind of get their get their house in order and uh, and 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 decide uh, on a longer term path for uh, for the embassy in Afghanistan and for U.S.-Afghan uh, relations generally. And, and if I could uh, clarify something very quickly, that's pretty normal that a chief of mission holds down the fort until the new ambassadors can be appointed and confirmed, right? Nominated and confirmed? Yes. Usually career career ambassadors are, almost, are, are also asked to submit their resignation at, at the time of administration's change. But uh, but uh, career ambassadors almost always remain in place until a new career uh, appointee come uh, comes out. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of presidential appointees, the the, the when they leave, the, the role of, of acting chief of mission then falls to the number two, who is who is chargé d'affaires in the same way that I was, uh, or or in a similar way to to the role that I played. In my case, it was a little bit more indefinite. Uh, <laughs> Right, you know, more or less, more or less, right from the start, uh, and and in a higher stakes situation. So the guidance you get from the Biden administration was continue on what you're doing, or did they give you some guidance, uh, new things they wanted you to work on? 
Um, I think the, broadly speaking, yes, was to continue to work on the things uh, along the same lines uh, of, uh, of emphasis that I have been given by, uh, by Secretary Pompeo. Um, they conveyed a, a, um, to, to me and to Afghan leaders their, con- their intent that the United States uh, would continue strongly to support Afghanistan, would continue security and economic assistance there. Uh, to uh, uh, continue to support meaningful uh, and sincere negotiations that were in Doha, the, the Afghan-Taliban negotiations uh, in Doha that had begun in the previous uh, September 2020, uh, and, uh, and, and carry out our activities in a way to, to try to preserve gains that the country had made, uh, gains in terms of the rights of women, the rights of minorities, uh, the democratic institutions that had developed there, the freedoms and, and the prosperity, such as it was, uh, that that uh, that had developed, we wanted to try to maintain and continue to build on that. Uh, the incoming administration uh, set about, and again, this was conveyed to me, I was part of this process, set about uh, a review, a review of the, the terms of the U.S.-Taliban agreement uh, so that they understood uh, more clearly than they would have as private citizens prior to January 21st, what were the terms of the agreement and the extent to which uh, it, it, w- it was being implemented and, and honored by, uh, by, by the Taliban, uh, to uh, a, a comprehensive review of U.S.-Afghan relations and you know what? What again? What was going on actually? About you know behind behind news headlines, uh, and um, and to talk through the range of issues relating to the specific commitment in the U.S. Taliban agreement that U.S. and coalition forces would be gone by uh, uh, out out of the country by uh, by May first. Hmm. Um, and the discussions that I was most directly involved in had really to do with, with, with two sets of issues, one or maybe three sets of issues. One was um, these matters having to do with the withdrawal and the consequences of, of, of a, a withdrawal of American forces should the president decide, President Biden decide to go ahead with that. Uh, and, and second, how to, how to ameliorate uh, those consequences, especially the negative consequences, uh, potential negative consequences in terms of our counterterrorism priorities, in terms of our cooperation and support of the Afghan government and Afghan security forces, uh, in terms of our Afghan p- friends and partners, uh, both the, the, uh, those who had worked directly for the U.S. government in the past, but others whom we had supported uh, and helped uh, and who had supported and helped us and advance our objectives in the country, uh, and uh, and and I, I think the the Afghan side was very very anxious to engage with the new administration. Uh, in fact, uh, senior senior leaders wanted to go to Washington more or less on January twenty first uh, <laughs> to uh, uh, to engage with the new team. Uh, they were dissuaded from that, in part because of COVID and yeah. uh, and and kind of a clampdown on face-to-face meetings that had already that had been existent for some time. Of course, uh, the stack up of urgent tasks that the new administration had, um, but but uh, 
they got they got in Washington also got kind of a steady stream of of uh, of engagements, conversations, phone calls, video conferences, and the like over the months that followed. And 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 my role really was to be on point uh, between the periodic phone calls and uh, and both uh, try to explain to President Ghani where things were, or what was happening, what, what issues were on the table, uh, but also to convey his, uh, his views and the views of other senior leaders uh, as Washington tried to sort through uh, an extremely difficult and challenging set of decisions, whether to withdraw, on, uh, withdraw U.S. forces on May 1st, under what terms, and then, and then how to deal with some of the potential implications of that for the Afghan government, for our friends and partners, uh, and for the, the embassy's ability safely to, uh, to continue to function. So the, so the Trump administration's negotiations with the Taliban, the agreement was that we were going to be out May 1st. Is that right? That, that was the date that's provided for in the U.S.-Taliban agreement that was signed in February 2020. And typically when we're talking about international relations, we want consistency from one administration to the next in all foreign affairs agreements. Is that roughly accurate? Or we try to? I, yes. I mean, that's a, a good international practice. I think that was the priority or the, the, the maybe not the default, but but that was a big part of uh, I, I mean, what I what I perceived a big part of the way that the Biden administration looked at this. Mm-hmm. Um, they they did not want to just walk away from this. Certainly not uh, walk away from the May first undertaking, and certainly not to do so without having very carefully thought through. Uh, the potential implications uh, for security in Afghanistan, yeah. uh, the implications for the, the 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 peace talks that were underway, uh, the implications with our allies and partners uh, in in that country, uh, the implications in terms of how uh, of how foreigners look at agreements that they conclude with the United States in general, and the durability of commitments that aren't enshrined in a treaty. Again, continuity in, in foreign affairs is, is in general a, 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 a good thing or certainly something that you want to, uh, you want to consider uh, as, uh, as you look at your foreign policy priorities going forward. Okay. Uh, how, can we talk a little bit about Afghanistan's president at the time, Ashraf Ghani? I mean, what was he like as a leader, as a person? Did you get a sense of the man's hopes for his nation when you had these weekly dialogues with him? Uh, I'd, I'd had the good fortune to have met President Ghani when he, before he became president. Uh, while, it, while I was at the Atlantic Council, he was involved in a number of, pro, of our programs there, and I was struck by his um, by his. You know, he's a, a very serious scholar. Uh, he he burrows deep, deep, deep. Really drills down into the details of issues and, and wants to know and to understand them, uh, and and draws conclusions. The flip side of that is um, he's a man who, who believes he knows more than others and often does, um, but, but, but certainly believes that he knows more than others and has a better understanding than others. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, that, so uh, very, very, he saw himself as the leader of the post 9-11, uh, of post 9-11 Afghanistan, uh, and of, and of the generation that that came of age and came into 
uh, into power and into influence, um, it, and 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 wanted to, uh, and I really got right up to the very end, wanted to preserve and to protect that, uh, and not see the country slide back. Uh, Ghani had spent a lot of time in the United States. He came here uh, on a on a scholarship. Uh, went to. Uh, 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 either high school or, or the first few years of college, um, saw himself as a modernizer. Um, um, uh, the, I think the liability in, in this, the flip side of thinking you know more than others do, um, his modernization was top down. Uh, he was not interested in the politics of building uh, of building support for um, for strategies, rather. He would figure it out. He would figure out the right strategy, and that's that's what what would happen. Uh, that had the effect of alienating uh, of alienating others uh, in the in the in the Afghan political firmament and undermining the objectives that he was trying to pursue. So, so not a big coalition builder, in other words. No. How about leadership of uh, you know his relationship with the leadership of the military, the national police? Uh, I mean, was, did he have good working relations with them, or was he sort of alienating them in, in the process as well? Um, the the actions uh, that he that he took in the time that I was there, uh, and and the and developments on the ground, I think uh, undermined his relations with the military. Mm. He was seen again as he saw himself as somebody who understood security problems better than they did, uh, better than security leaders did. Uh, he was seen as a micromanager. Mm. Uh, he was regarded uh, by some, by many in the military, as someone who bullied uh, his senior commanders. He frequently changed them. Uh, often in, in a case where, uh, you know, things go wrong in, in military security affairs, you lose, you lose battles, uh, uh, or, uh, or, or your, your positions become compromised and you have to withdraw. Um, and sometimes the result of that is you change commanders, particularly if you've got somebody else in, in line who will do better. But, but if you don't, then maybe you think twice or three or four times about making changes. He was quick to make changes. He was quick to criticize. Uh, and one of the phenomenon that we dealt with in 2021 in particular, and that, that became worse and worse and worse as we got into the summer and headed toward, uh, toward the collapse on August 15th, was a churn in, in senior military and security sector commanders. Uh, churn in ministerial appointments in the security in the security field, uh, and a great deal of micromanagement by President Ghani and by his senior people uh, in, uh, in in security affairs that that they did that they uh, on which they lacked uh, ex- expertise and experience. How about uh, I know that Afghanistan has always been this sort of unique place where. Uh, you have all these provincial kind of warlords, or in this case, governors. Uh, what kind of relationship did he have with the uh, with the provincial governors? Was it a good one with some, bad with others, uh, no- notoriously bad across the board? I mean, what, what was it that you observed? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll separate two different categories there. Uh, the president appoints all the governors, okay. so he had, he had a fine relationship with them. <laughs> uh, and and when when things went wrong, um, you know, he'd fire them. And and there was a certain amount of churn in the governors uh, as well, uh, and that increased uh, throughout the time that I was uh, throughout the time that I was there, especially especially in the last 
six months or so. Um, the, 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 the regional power brokers, for the most part, were not governors and never had been. Uh, these are people like uh, Dostum, uh, like, uh, like uh, Mohakek uh, and Khalilig, the leaders of the Hazara, uh, of, of Hazara militias and uh, militia and political groups, uh, a couple of different Tajik uh, leaders. Um, and, and Ghani's relationships with them were not, were, were not good. Uh, occasionally, he would strike. Uh, he would strike deals with them. He struck a deal in 2014 uh, to include Dostum on on the presidential ticket as uh, as a as one of his two vice presidents, uh, and 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 in a in a deal uh, a political marriage of convenience uh, that 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 served President Ghani's needs and presumably also those of uh, those of Dostum for a period. Uh, but in general, Ghani's relationships with 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 the warlords were were bad, um, and and part of that was that this this top down, uh, I know better, uh, lack of coalition building politics or, or lack of political sense. Uh, uh, but it was also there was also a conviction on Ghani's part that the warlords were that was Afghanistan's past mm. that Afghanistan had to move away from that toward uh to in in and in, in more in the direction of stable institutions that that could rise above warlordism and factional uh militia driven uh militia driven politics it it wasn't necessarily the wrong idea right uh but but how it got pursued and and implemented um uh, presented a lot of problems for Afghanistan and for the United States there. Cultural changes are a hard thing to, to institute. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Ambassador Ross Wilson, who served as U.S. Charge Affairs in the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, Ambassador, I'm going to ask sort of a two-part question. Uh, I'll, I'll present I'll preempt it by just saying this. Uh, throughout the late winter and spring of 2021 back here in the U.S., we, we kept hearing about this, the news about these tens of thousands of Afghans who'd applied for a special immigrant visa, or the SIV, as they kept referring to it in the news. Uh, very quickly, who were the SIV applicants? Uh, can you give us a quick rundown on that? Sure. So um, uh, under the terms of what's called the, Af the Allies Afghan Protection Act of 2009, um, Af Afghan citizens who had worked for or with the United States government uh, were, uh, were allowed or entitled to apply for immigrant visas to the United States. Normally, when you apply for an immigrant visa, you have to have a relative here or, or, or some kind of a tie. The tie in the case of, of Afghans was having worked for us. You didn't have to have a, a brother or a parent or, a, 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 you know, some other direct relative that you were traveling to the United States to be with. So these were interpreters. These were fixers. These were people in staff positions uh, for the U.S. military, for the contractors that supported the U.S. military at our embassy in, in Kabul, uh, and and working in other ways uh, for the U.S. government. Over time, that kind of got modified a little bit beyond direct hire, uh, uh, people in direct hire positions for the U.S. government to include contractors, subcontractors. That that came along a little bit later. Um, what the the 
what's special about a special immigrant visa is, are two things. One is you you get to apply for an immigrant visa without without the family ties that that would otherwise have to be part of the deal. But you also move to the head of the queue in terms of processing. Uh, once you have demonstrated your eligibility for that special piece, for that special treatment. And under the terms of the law and the way it was implemented from 2009 on, applicants had to produce a letter of recommendation from their supervisor, uh, American supervisor, and then, and then uh, a documentation, separate documentation to support the, the assertion that they had in fact worked for the US government, documentation from an HR department, for example, uh, and, then, and then a range of other uh, Afghan, more Afghan focused documents, a passport uh, 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 and uh, uh, ID cards and the like. And they had to sign uh, an, an, af an affirmation that they believe that they faced imminent uh, th uh, threat uh, or feared imminent threat in Afghanistan that, that there was, it wasn't just that they wanted to go, uh, but that they, but that they, um, uh, but that they faced, they faced threats. When I arrived in Afghanistan, the, the, the backlog of SIV applicants was something in the order of 18,000. Um, but to understand that figure, uh, one piece to note is that is that there's a substantial there there seemed to be a substantial body of applicants who applied, took the initial step of going onto the website uh, and filling out the you know filling out the initial forms, their name and that that sort of thing, and then they get this list of documents that they need they need to obtain, but in but then subsequently uh, seem not to have pursued the application. Perhaps they they realized on looking at the details that they didn't they weren't going to qualify. Mm. Uh, maybe they couldn't track down an American supervisor. Maybe too many years had passed, or they didn't know how uh, to you know to access uh, through the internet or by other means to try to track people down. Maybe they couldn't get uh, HR letters uh, affirming or describing uh, their their service to the U.S. government. Um, but there were also some very significant um, uh, bottlenecks in the program. Um, in order to be approved for special immigrant visa, uh, that, that was um, a, you, you, the approval was by the chief of mission in Kabul, uh, but it followed a, a set of, uh, a set of uh, uh, bureaucratic and security checks by an office in Washington, not in Kabul, that uh, that was uh, that was always understaffed uh, and and was not a priority um, more or less from the as far as I could tell more or less from the time it was established and in particular was was uh, was understaffed and sidelined uh, was understaffed and sidelined in the in the several years before uh, uh, before we left Afghanistan and before the Biden administration came in the what 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 uh, what we uh, and then and then there was also this little problem of COVID right. that <laughs> that closed our consular section to to normal public sur public uh, access from about uh, April maybe mid late April 2020 until January 2021. We weren't processing SIV applicants. We were receiving applications, 
uh, and and there was some backlog of, of people who had been approved, and so we were we were able to issue uh, issue some documentation to to those who had gotten through the program. Uh, but 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 a, an important part of the, the 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 checking of people's bona fides. Afghanistan is a deeply deeply corrupt country, yeah, right. <laughs> and lots of applications and and. Uh, for jobs at the embassy, for for SIVs, for all kinds of things that were that that lacked substantiation, shall we say? So an important part of the SIV process, uh, crucial actually, or deemed crucial, was um, was a face-to-face interview with a consular officer okay. who could ask questions and 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 try to ascertain the bona fides of the person, the family sitting in front of him. This is the family that's described in these documents. This is the person uh, that, that worked for the U.S. government. That, that individual can answer some questions about what they did for us. And, and you know, the story, the story sort of fits. And those in-person interviews also, uh, as I suggested, got, got kind of uh, constipated, shall we say, from, <laughs> from April, to, uh, April to January. After that, we we embarked on a on a uh, a big 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 push to try to accelerate uh, the processing. I think it's on the order of four or five thousand uh, that uh, that we were able to uh, able to move through the pipeline uh, before uh, uh, before the government fell and we had to leave. And and at the end of that, the number I believe was around twenty one or twenty two thousand. Okay. Uh, a lot, many Afghans who had worked for the U.S. government uh, in previous years, many who were working at that time, either for the U.S. military or at the embassy, who hadn't, frankly speaking, hadn't bothered to apply. They had not applied for a, an SIV as they looked at the political and security situation around them, uh, uh, up, applied for the program, and the numbers, you know, kind of, kind of went went back up. Uh, there are three more questions that I'd like to ask you. Uh, we're starting to run short on time, so I'll ask you if you could sort of be direct with me on, on these answers. Uh, the Taliban began advancing across Afghanistan really in the early summer, and it's pretty clear from the news reports that they were well-armed and well-financed. Uh, without giving away any classified information, obviously, how was it that the Taliban were able to acquire all that equipment? What nation or nations were backing them as they started their offensive to take retake Afghanistan? Uh, were they being provided intelligence support by any other nations? I mean, what were you hearing on the ground? Well, it 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 it, it seemed evident that the Taliban got a significant amount of support from Pakistan. They certainly had sanctuary in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the extent to which uh, the the Pakistanis provided military equipment, uh, intelligence support, I, I can't really I can't really provide much specifics there. But but there was a level of support, and that that. Uh, that kind of goes without saying. In addition, though, the Talibs um, uh, uh, raised money uh, on their own. Uh, they 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 ran and supported a lucrative drug trafficking business. Uh, they collected taxes from citizens in the in the fifty percent or so, fifty sixty percent of the country uh, that they that they occupied, that their forces occupied. They collected uh, taxes on shipments that went through territory that they controlled. So trucks bringing cargo to Kabul, uh, bringing you know moving stuff around the country, uh, very often, usually in fact, went through uh, went through Taliban checkpoints, and 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 uh, those truckers had to pay fees. 
they were able to use monies that they that those monies and this is billions of dollars that they were able to raise themselves to to procure weaponry on the international black market there's a lot of stuff out there uh they weren't the most sophisticated force they didn't have expensive tanks they had no air force they had they had toyota trucks they had machine guns they had uh, small and simple rockets. Uh, those aren't terribly expensive, and I think they're not not that difficult to uh, to procure. Yeah. As the Taliban took provincial capital after capital, what, what was the sense of the Afghan government in Kabul about their chances of remaining in power? I mean, more precisely, at what point did you realize that the senior political leaders, military leaders, even the national police leaders in Afghanistan were going to throw in the towel and run away bravely? And how did that sequence unfold uh, as you witnessed it? Well, there's a long answer to that, John, but maybe the short one in the in the summer, uh, in June, uh, in in June and the first part of July, I think we became increasingly concerned about Taliban advances uh, and ex- a significant expansion of the areas that the uh, that the Taliban controlled. Uh, increasingly effective uh, attacks. Um, Around provincial capitals, although not not uh, not until ju- late, late late July on provincial capitals, but but high level of vulnerability, increasing limits on our ability to support them as U.S. forces have drawn down our ability to carry out local airstrikes or or carry out other activity to support them is uh, is diminishing quite uh, you know quite uh, quite substantially. The, the, the pivot point, I think, uh, clearly was in early August. Okay. Uh, the first provincial capital fell, I think, on August 7 or 8 uh, in, in Hel- the capital of Helmand. A whole bunch uh, uh, fell in rapid, uh, rapid succession, in particular uh, the capitals in the north that cut off uh, Afghanistan from its principal source and our embassy's principal source of fuel uh, and electricity, which which was um, uh, which was the the Central Asian states, uh, and it and at that point uh, the the situation starts to look uh, really very very tenuous. Yeah. So, Ambassador Wilson, I know the events of the evacuation are still pretty fresh in your mind, uh, as we say in the military, a, a significant emotional experience, uh, and you went through that entire evacuation operation. I, I want to give you a chance to sh- kind of share your thoughts on the evacuation, uh, the horrific choices you and other leaders had to make kind of in real time. Is there anything you'd like to share about that uh, evacuation operation? Sure. Um, the, 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 the situation at the airport, especially at the outset, was, was highly chaotic. Uh, even just the simple matter of gaining control of the airfield. I'm sure you and your listeners recall those images of crowds streaming across the tarmac uh, that that raised a lot of questions about whether we were going to be able to do evacuations yeah. and and frankly about our ability uh, safely to to remain there. Uh, the situation outside uh, the the perimeter of the airport. Um, uh, one of my colleagues used the term said, said it's, it was like a scene out of Lord of the Flies. Hmm. Um, ghastly, uh, uh, frightening crowds, uh, uh, terrified people. Um, uh, Talib figure, Talib soldiers who are trained in this, they're dealing with a situation that they had in no way anticipated. Uh, a, and then you have a, what, 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 uh, what one can liken to a kind of a Niagara Falls 
of appeals to us for help from Afghans, Afghan friends and partners that we had, from uh, Afghan institutions that were important to us, uh, from uh, from Western uh, media organizations, Western businesses, uh, uh, Western political leaders who were concerned about people that they were they were that had supported them. Um, exhaustion, uh, you know, all of us at the embassy uh, who um, who were evacuated, the, the, the embassy, which at that point was about 1,500 people evacuated the airport, but all but maybe 25 or so flew out of the country more or less immediately. Those that remained behind exhausted by days and days before we went to the airport of, you know, 20 hour work, uh, 20 hours a day of work, but uh, and and then and then that compounds itself in this ghastly situation in which we found itself a huge amount of sadness about what was happening around us, a lot of fear, uh, well-founded fear of uh, of uh, of ISIS attacks, uh, uncertainty about the Taliban uh, the Taliban's intentions around the airport, intense scrutiny from Washington. Uh, on on what we were doing. Um, A lot of very, that had two sides, a lot of very, very helpful involvement by seniors to solve problems and solve bottlenecks where they existed. And that was, that was helpful to us. Also, uh, uh, use the term in the military, the the 10,000 mile screwdriver, (laughs) two things that, that, that really in a way that didn't work from uh from afar uh the hardest thing i ever did Mm. Uh, i started our show today with a with a missive that we should focus less on blame in america when it comes to national security interests because those are really you know kind of by or nonpartisan really in in many words and more on learning the lessons from our failures so don't repeat them and and frankly our 20 years of effort in in afghanistan I, i don't think we can say anything other than we failed so for you, as a career senior diplomat with experience all over the world, what, what do you think are the most important lessons America should learn from our experience in Afghanistan? Uh, I'd say a couple of things, John. First, I'm, I'm, <clears throat> uh, I'm not sure I agree entirely with the proposition that we failed. Okay. Uh, we did not entirely succeed. Uh, we did, in some very fundamental and important ways, transform Afghanistan and Afghan society for the better yeah. uh, in terms of life expectancy, opportunities for people, the opening up of that country and drawing it into the rest of the world. A whole generation came of age uh, while we were there, uh, more embedded in Western values and in global values than, than had ever been the case before. Mm-hmm. Most of those people are still there. That investment is still there, and I think that investment will continue to play an important influencing role uh, in Afghanistan and in the future. And I say that in part because we don't want to sell ourselves too short. We didn't entirely fail there, and we did some important things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a second a second point is, um, you know, we we uh, uh, we also need. I believe, to find ways to continue to be involved there. We made a mistake uh, in Afghanistan in, in the 1990s in, right. in, in leaving and especially in staying gone for all of those years from the collapse of the communist regime or before the collapse of the communist regime through to, uh, through to 2001. 
that wasn't good. It wasn't good for our interests and it wasn't good for Afghanistan. Uh, and so uh, I, I am a proponent of our finding ways to get back in there, get back in the game, uh, exercise the influence that we have, um, help to stem this frightening uh, humanitarian mm. catastrophe that's unfolding there uh, as a result of drought as well as as well as war and and the and the and the breakdown of state institutions uh, and uh, and and find ways through the, the manner in which we deal with with uh, with the government we don't like the government there are lots of governments we don't like find ways in which we deal with that government and with society uh, to advance our interests whether it's security or humanitarian or uh, or otherwise i think some strategic patience is required there it certainly isn't easy and won't be easy but uh, but that that would be my my prescription for going forward yeah, I was on. A, I was on a panel uh, not long after you know we'd finished the uh, withdrawal out of Afghanistan uh, over at Carleton College, and I actually made the point that we really. I mean, history is continuously being made, so we really don't know what the outcome is going to be yet in Afghanistan. And and your discussion about the investment that we made over that twenty years, that entire generation of kids that grew up under freedom and opportunity, uh, that that may have some long lasting impacts. Uh, on what's going to happen there. Uh, and you mentioned the U.S. should remain engaged, and we made a mistake about not being engaged. I don't know if you've ever heard of the book by Steve Cole called uh, Ghost Wars. Uh, for our listeners, that is a fascinating book. It's a, it's a must-read if you really want to understand what was happening in Afghanistan from the start of the Soviet invasion up until September 10th of uh, 2001. Uh, we've come to the end of the, today's edition of National Security This Week. Ambassador Ross Wilson, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a fantastic uh, discussion. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that you were able to join us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. What, what are you pursuing now that you're kind of retired again? Anything interesting? Uh, I'm trying to get back into a normal life uh, <laughs> and uh, taking care of things at home that that kind of got unattended for uh, for nearly two years. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a loyal listener of National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish of your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. The days are getting cooler, and it means it's time to take a trip to Witt Brothers for your winter checkup. Let's face it, no one wants to get caught in the cold with a dead battery. Make sure your vehicle is in peak condition for the winter season. The checkup includes an oil change, tire rotation, brake inspection, battery tests, and they'll even winterize your vehicle. Stop by Witt Brothers Service located at 701 Division Street in downtown.